Hello, and welcome to another episode of Castle Production Podcast. Today, I'll be your host, Joe Lazell. And of course, I have my great, great friend, Dr. Sean Harris with me today. How are you, Sean? I'm doing great. You know, it's holiday season, it's mid-year upon us. It's definitely an exciting mm-hmm. time to be a resident. But I'm even more excited because we have one of the pharmacists that I work with who I think is an expert in his field. He's great to work with. We have Dr. Joe Pardo, who is an ID pharmacist. If you want to just briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, Joe. Yeah. Uh, first, thanks for having me on. I think this is um, super cool what you guys have going on here with the podcast. So yeah, I'm uh, Joe Pardo. And before I forget, just to get this out of the way, since as you alluded to, I am a VA pharmacist. Um, I just have to say that anything we talk about today that comes from me, solely my take and my opinion and does not reflect any, uh, you know, opinions of the government or the VA. But with that out of the way, I'm from the Gainesville area. I'm a UF grad. You know, I went to UF for my um, undergrad and pharmacy school. Uh, Just to give a quick, you know, sum up of the rest of my pharmacy training journey to where I ended at the VA. I did a PGY-1 residency in Fort Myers at Lee Memorial Health System. Did a PGY-2 in ID at Shams in uh, Gainesville. And then I took my role here at the VA hospital. Nice. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you have a a unique journey that was uh, focused on ID. Um, So I'm just really curious, is ID something that you always knew you wanted to get into or what initially, I guess, what what attracted you to that field? So, you know, I I joke or I half joke that um, the reason I ended up wanting to go into ID is because I was lazy. So around the time that um, I was finishing up pharmacy school and going on rotations, one of the big problems people talked about in healthcare is that there's no new antibiotics. So, you know, we have the antibiotics that we have and we're not getting any new ones. So I always joked, well, all right, if I have like one set of drugs and there's not going to be any new ones, I'm just going to go into ID because uh, I'll just have to learn it once and then be, be set. So it hasn't really been like that. I mean, ID is nothing like oncology where there's a new drug every single day. But surprisingly, you know, over the last five to 10 years, there's been um, a good handful of uh, new ID drugs to um, get to learn and figure out where they fit in, and also a global pandemic along the way. So plenty to keep it interesting. But to answer your question in seriousness, I, um, I guess probably second year we did our first ID module, second year of pharmacy school, and I just thought antibiotics were cool. So, you know, the idea that you give a living organism, humans, some kind of compound, drugs or antibiotics that are designed to go into you and kill something else that's alive, but, you know, not harm you. I just thought it was really cool. It's almost like something you find in a scary movie or something. So I just thought the concept of antibiotics were cool. I did well in the ID modules. Um, and then really once I got out on clinical rotations and, uh, you know, got to work with some of the ID pharmacists, saw the kinds of things they were doing, um, had some good ID pharmacist uh, mentors. Um, so I, I did all of my pharmacy school rotations at Shands. So I had a chance to work longitudinally on some ID projects and, um, you know, ultimately developed the relationships that brought me back there for my PGY2. But, uh, you know, I saw the ID stuff is everywhere. So, you know, any rotation that I was on, these ID um, issues kept coming up over and over again. So, um, yeah, I decided there was 
a need for it, it looked like, and saw that pharmacists could really make an impact, saw the way that the, um, the ID doctors really valued the opinions of the ID pharmacists that I was working with. So I thought I'd go that route. The other thing is I always liked ID because I guess I, I contrast it with something like cardiology, where cardiology, if you look at something like primary and secondary prevention, we got a patient, we don't want them to get sick or have a heart attack or a stroke. So we try to optimize their medication regimen. And then we just have to wait five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to see if, you know, are they going to be healthy or are they going to have a heart attack over time? Whereas an ID, you put someone on a set of drugs or a drug and then, um, you know, relatively in comparison, quickly, you see if it's working or not. So I kind of like that aspect of ID as well. Yeah, there's definitely more of a quick turnaround when it comes to treatment and seeing the patient improvement when it comes to ID. But I like the fact that you started off this saying that the reason why you were interested in ID was because of the fact, you know, it's been the same drugs, it's been simple, not really much has changed. And then all of a sudden, I'm sure in the past couple of years, <laughs> a lot has changed when it comes to new guidelines and, right. and new, new information that's out there. And we'll definitely go over that um, a little bit later in the podcast. But thank you for sharing that with us. So when it comes to infectious disease, I feel... I personally never spent any time with an ID pharmacist on rotations. Um, we have one at my residency site at Advent Health Celebration. I was able to spend a little bit of time with her, but that's something that I feel a lot of us as students, even sometimes as practicing pharmacists, depending on what career you're in, we don't really spend time with an ID pharmacist or know exactly what they do. So my question for you that I wanted to make sure we get answered today is what is a day in the life of an ID pharmacist? So I guess the first thing um, that I would say about that, uh, like a lot of uh, questions in ID, it depends. So um, <laughs> you know, I can talk about <laughs> I can talk about what I do and what you know the other ID pharmacists um, you know that I work with in the VA do. Um, but really, you know, and that is a lot of different things. But outside of my scope, there's all kinds of other areas that an ID pharmacist can practice in. And, and I can talk about that a little bit, even if it's stuff that I'm not directly involved with. So like for me, I work for a health system that consists of acute care hospitals, nursing homes, and outpatient clinics. So my time is split up, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to optimize antibiotic use across a couple of different settings. So to, to look at it, you know, from the viewpoint of like a day in the life of uh, Joe Pardo, Typically, like in the mornings, a lot of my emphasis will be on the acute care side where, you know, probably um, more rapid answers to stuff might be needed. I think a lot of ID pharmacists in the hospital setting are going to try to use some kind of technology to uh, maximize their time. So, um, you know, a lot of different electronic medical records will have um, ways to streamline your workflow, you know, to try to look at patients that have ID issues going on so that you can help uh, teams address those. So whether that's a report um, that can show you patients in the hospital uh, with positive blood cultures or, you know, positive C. diff test or a bug drug mismatch, something like that. So um, those are kind of some of the things that I might do in the morning, as well as uh, something called prospective audit with feedback, 
where you might have some group of patients in your hospital that maybe they're on um, you know, a target group of drugs that you're trying to improve the use of, and you might just look at those patients and uh, see if everything checks out, or if there's opportunity to um, improve their antibiotics. Get questions from the medical teams, from the ID teams about specific patients that they're caring for. And um, I guess I would say just, you know, to give a very, very rough split, we'll just say about half my time might be involved with like individual patient cases. And then the other half of my time, um, if not more, is really trying to look at things from the system level and how can we improve antibiotic use from the system level. So formulary management, figuring out where new antibiotics might fit into practice, logistical stuff that you might not think about when you're uh, going through pharmacy school. Um, like, for example, there's some uh, newer HIV drugs um, that are long-acting injectables. So that's, you know, great. They're going to have a, a clinical role. But now you have to figure out where are those drug products going to live? How are you going to schedule patients for these injections? Where are they going to go get these injections? Um, that kind of stuff. And then you got, you know, the fun stuff like P&T committee. Um, you'll have your stewardship committees where you're uh, meeting with other stakeholders throughout the hospital to, um, you know, gather input and push forth different initiatives. There's the ID consult service, which sees all the ID consults in the hospital. We work very closely with them on the patients that they're seeing to um, get their antibiotic plans tidied up. Other stuff that I'm not directly involved with, uh, but there's another pharmacist in our health system that is. And, uh, you know, depending on where you go, there's, you know, all other kinds of settings where pharmacists could be involved with this. But um, home IV antibiotic therapy. So we have a pharmacist that follows a whole slew of patients that are discharged from the hospital on IV antibiotics, you know, following their labs each week, adjusting medications as needed. In the outpatient setting, uh, working as a pharmacist in the VA, you have the ability to see patients as their direct primary provider. So you can, you know, work under a scope of practice and prescribe HIV medications or medications to treat, um, you know, hepatitis C or HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. Um, and then there's completely different arenas, academia, there's industry, research. I mean, really there's, you know, there's all kinds of stuff that ID pharmacists might be involved in. And that's interesting because I never really thought about the different roles that they can play. Because when, when I asked that question, what I was directly thinking of is usually like consults, like probably just seeing a lot of different patients, but I didn't think about the antimicrobial stewardship component that you were mentioning, looking at drug formulary reviews, looking over, mm -hmm. like, like we were saying with, um, I believe you're referring to Cabinuva, but the injectable HIV medication that you can right. use. Um, and patients, if that fits your patient population, like, hey, is this something we want to add on to formulary? And that's not something I feel most average pharmacist is involved in. So you have more of an admin type of component too when it comes to being an ID pharmacist, you would say? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's definitely a, an administrative component, but really like as you, you know, get in the health system into some sort of specialty role, whether it's ID or um, oncology, or really any specialty area, the health system is going to look at you as the clinical expert and leader in that area to help make those kind of administrative decisions. So definitely not specific to ID, more so just being a specialist. 
Perfect. Thank you for that. Now, you kind of touched upon earlier being involved, like if the uh, medical team reached out to you with consults and there's any questions like that for you for a pharmacy to help with. Do you get a lot of pushback whenever you make recommendations or how is that process when it comes to giving recommendations to ID um, specialists? So um, I think I'm very uh, fortunate to work in the environment that I work in. So um, our uh, medical provider group is very collaborative, very open to feedback from the pharmacist, not just open, like places a very high value on it. And that goes for, you know, just the general uh, medicine, you know, hospitalists and internal medicine folks, the um, outpatient primary care folks, and then also the ID group. So um, I think we have a good working relationship, but, you know, you don't always see eye to eye on, on every single issue that might come up. So, you know, I think, you know, to think about a situation where maybe someone hasn't taken your recommendation and how you handle that, it really, again, it's going to depend on the situation. So if, uh, of course, if there's something going on and you think it's urgently going to impact patient safety, then you would need to like really put your foot down. But for a lot of things, you know, I, I think the right time to address it might not be uh, right there on the moment for that specific patient. So, you know, you might get into these disagreements or find out that there's a disagreement and opinion on some clinical issue. And um, sometimes, you know, let that one go. But now you have it on your list that this is something we can talk about later um, in a different setting, maybe not when you're like right in the heat of the moment of the clinical decision. And that's fine. And it, it's it kind of helps sometimes to, uh, you know, take a a bigger picture view of it. So let's say, for example, one of the hot topics in ID that continues to come up is about duration of therapy for treatment of specific infections. And we have accumulating data that uh, shorter durations of treatment are um, often as good as longer durations of treatment. So let's say uh, you're helping out ID consult service and um, there's a patient with E. coli bacteremia and the ID attending is making recommendations to treat for a total of 14 days. But, you know, you've been keeping up with the literature. You know, there's a couple RCTs now that say probably you could do something like seven days and that would be just as good. So maybe you bring it up and you get some pushback. You know, probably you don't want to make a big argument out of it. You know, the chances are if that patient gets 14 days instead of seven, yes, it's uh, excessive antibiotic therapy maybe that they don't need. But adverse, you know, effects from antibiotics still relatively uncommon. And it's not going to be the end of the world if they get a two-week duration instead of one. So you can let that go, but then bring it up later for discussion, maybe, you know, with a bigger uh, group of the ID folks or your stewardship committee and say, hey, you know, I've seen, um, you know, maybe like some different approaches to treatment of these infections in terms of duration of therapy. Can we all like sit down and come up with some kind of you know, guidance or something that we all agree upon is a reasonable approach and take it that way instead of trying to make a big deal at the, you know, the point of care for one specific patient. Yeah, definitely. I definitely feel like that approach is a good way to build um, a good ongoing like rapport and relationship with physicians, especially when you're just trying to show that like, hey, I'm just another like someone who has clinical knowledge and like I'm here as a resource to like also provide like the best mm -hmm. patient care. 
So I really, really like that approach. And I know for me, like when I was doing interviews and things, like the hardest question for residency interviews was how do you communicate with someone like if they don't get along with the recommendation or you have like a dispute about like ongoing clinical practice. So I definitely feel like your approach is something that I feel like is very sound and it's definitely a good way to approach things. But um, going off of what you mentioned, um, keeping up with the literature. So this is something that I feel like as students, new pharmacists and residents, kind of keeping up with new clinical knowledge, new clinical data, new drugs. Do you have a certain methodology or ways you go about keeping up with new literature? Are there certain resources you use or how do you go about um, that, that in your practice? So that's a very important thing. And everyone kind of has their own ways that they prefer to keep up with uh, new literature, because really there's, um, you know, there's different avenues from which you can get your information. So I guess in no particular order of preference per se, but just some different places that um, I use and that, uh, you know, someone could look into. I think uh, social media, honestly, uh, helps out a lot today. So if you, so in no particular order, some places that I use to stay up to date on current literature, uh, first would be social media. If you curate, um, you know, a feed of other healthcare professionals that are working in your field, you know, it, it helps to see uh, what are they talking about and what are they find, finding interesting? Um, because it's impossible for you to read every single journal article that comes out that might be relevant to um, your practice. So just kind of staying in the loop on the stuff that people are posting and talking about, I think can help. I think uh, email alerts are still very valuable. So, you know, choosing just a couple of top journals in your area and just sign up for email alerts to get the table of contents whenever uh, you know their new issues come out. Um, so for example, for ID, uh, you could subscribe to Clinical Infectious Diseases, which is one of the top clinical ID journals. And then you know, and every time a new um, issue comes out, it'll be there in your inbox. You can scroll through and see what looks like it's pertinent to your practice and take a look. Something that's been very interesting is actually uh, keeping up to date with the financial news. And uh, this has happened uh, a lot more in COVID times as well, but sometimes hot off the press study, you know, press releases, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, they don't make it into a journal website. You know, they're not peer reviewed yet, but there might be something in the news that's a press release from a company or um, just, you know, some kind of preliminary report. And um, you can kind of get updates in that realm, which is something different that, you know, I didn't ever think I would re really be looking at to see what's new with uh, drugs, but um, especially if there's uh, new therapies involved, that's one place you can look. And then I think good old fashioned journal clubs are very valuable. So, you know, we have a, a couple of different journal clubs that we run at the VA and Shans um, with the ID group. So it's great, you know, as a um, preceptor to precept students and residents that are putting those together and then also to do one every once in a while. I think teaching helps you stay up to date. So, you know, as you move, uh, you know, out of school into um, residency, you know, taking opportunities to precept students because when you know that you need to lead a topic discussion, you're going to make sure that you're freshened and up to date on whatever is the latest and greatest on the topic. 
And likewise, when you move past residency into practice post-residency, uh, you know, being the teacher is always going to really solidify things um, in your mind. And then I guess the last thing that's similar to that is I think writing is a good, a good way to stay sharp on stuff as well. So, um, you know, I'm not like a prolific ID publisher by any means, but um, trying to, you know, keep alive some bit of academia within your practice, even if it's not the main component of what you do every day, also um, can help, help force, force yourself to uh, stay up to date on, on topics. And one, one point that I'm really glad you mentioned was social media. I feel that's something not enough of my generation, of our generation, because you look, you look relatively young, so I'm going to say ours. <laughs> I'm not going to age you on the podcast. With, with the generation, we have so many different options that we can have good feeds that could just throw us new content, you know, with the algorithms and everything where it's like, it's really what you look at and they throw content at you. If you're looking at a lot of pharmacy related things, which I do, I get thrown a lot of pharmacy related things and it could be new hot off the press information or a new clinical trial that just dropped. And somebody already did like a brief overview of it. It's like, oh, wow, this is really cool. I didn't even know this happened. I think that was something recently I came across with the, uh, I think it was one of the SGLT2 inhibitors. I think it was um, epiglyphosin with the heart failure preserved ejection fraction, um, where they just got approval for that. And there was like an article that came out like maybe like three or three weeks ago. And I just thought that was really cool. And that's something that I think a lot of us could definitely use. There's a lot of great resources like Osmosis, Med, there's Core Console, Amcare RX, RX Key Slides, like thinking off the top of my head, different Instagram profiles that I look at, they just constantly are throwing great pharmacy content and knowledge. And I never really thought about doing that for ID. So I should probably start following some um, ID pages to kind of help me stay up to date with the newest information and kind of keep that information in my head because that's something where I know for a fact if I don't keep using my uh, ID knowledge, I will definitely lose it. So that would be something that would be beneficial for myself for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And I, you know, everyone can take their own approach to it. But for me personally, like I kind of silo it out. So I don't necessarily want to be bombarded with, you know, pharmacy or ID stuff. Uh, every moment of the day. So like for me, Twitter is my uh, more professional social media platform where, you know, I tend to follow more uh, pages like you would have mentioned um, that are, you know, posting up new articles and stuff or other pharmacists or ID physicians. Whereas like Instagram, I might just look at more hobby stuff and keep that like separate so I can kind of silo it out and not be bombarded with pharmacy stuff all the time. Yeah. And, and that's a great, great point. And that's something where you can have two profiles. I've seen, we have like yeah. Sean and I on our Instagram page, we have some people that follow us that have, that's their extra account and they have no friends or followers or anything except for like, they just follow certain pharmacy or healthcare pages just so that way if they want right. to just keep that separate from the other one, that's something else that you can do. So I'm glad you mentioned that. All right. So we kind of talked about how, you know, your interaction with physicians and how you kind of navigate the process of whenever they disagree with your recommendations. But have you come across a lot of times where physicians are more practicing in the way they were taught back in the day rather than following the newer recommendations that are out? And if so, if you have experienced that, what are some of those 
newer recommendations in the ID field that they are kind of hesitant to cross over to? Sure. So I think, um, you know, that's an interesting topic. And uh, I feel like I'm in an interesting spot in my career to comment on it because, um, so let's see, it's 2021. I graduated from UF in 2012. So um, I've been a pharmacist for almost 10 years now. And um, I feel like I'm kind of there in the middle where um, I'm starting to see how things that I learned in school, you know, are not done anymore, or, you know, drugs that we focused on are not relevant anymore. And um, I think when you first come out of school, and you're in residency, and all you're, you know, doing is focused on, you know, learning everything new that you can, you almost might lack the empathy for someone that's you know, been in a role for 30 years towards the end of their career, and you, you know, might get frustrated, like, why aren't they picking up all this new stuff? So I think, so yeah, staying up to date is important. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. But I think uh, when these issues arise, it's good to step back and remember that at some point in time, you are going to be on the other end. And there's going to be people that are 20, 30 years younger than you. And looking back at like, what did this guy learn in pharmacy school? Because that is not how it's done anymore. So just keeping that perspective that, you know, everything that was done in medicine 50, 100 years ago looks ridiculous. And, you know, 50 or 100 years from now, things we're doing today will look ridiculous. So having a little bit of patience, I think, can help sometimes. But um, there are definitely things that come up that uh, change over time. So I think one one issue in ID, which we kind of, kind of already alluded to, is duration of therapy for um, treatment of certain infections, or even just whether or not to give antibiotics for certain infections. And um, there's actually, you know, published studies that have shown older physicians um, might be more likely to prescribe antibiotics versus younger physicians uh, for certain disease states, or might be more likely to prescribe longer durations for some disease states. And, uh, you know, that's in comparison to their younger counterparts. So I think uh, duration of therapy is one thing specific to the ID field that I tend to see, not just anecdotally, but actually in the literature as like something that's been established that's associated with the age of the prescriber. And then again, there, like, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can try to address that, but I think it does help if you, uh, you know, have a little bit of understanding. Don't come in guns blazing. Calm down a little bit. Build those relationships, and uh, you can you can address those things. Got it. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's it's interesting because we're coming from a place where it's like, all right, we learn these things. We want to make an impact. We want to show that we are knowledgeable, almost kind of to impress. I would say maybe your preceptor or to gain the respect of the elder physician with a recommendation that you feel is more correct. But sometimes, like you said, mm-hmm. we don't really look at it on the other end where it's like, hey, we could be pra- practicing pharmacy for 30 years and then a new student could come in and then just, or a resident could come in with all this new information that you didn't have over um, these old disease states that we used to treat this way. And that's something I never thought about. And it kind of does count as a lack of empathy. And that's something that we should definitely consider when speaking to these physicians or healthcare practitioners that have been practicing in their field for a long time, because you can also be dealing with um, APRNs and whatnot. So just being able to give them the respect that they deserve and just approaching it the right way, more 
of a question, I would say, than a statement. Like, hey, what do you think about this? Probably would be better than coming up with a direct yeah, way. And like a lot of these things, a lot of these things, um, you know, rapport with physicians and physician groups you know, if you are a hard worker and you're a generally nice person in the office place, you, you know, you know your, your, your drug therapy knowledge, like the rapport will develop over time. So like, you know, if you just do all the things that, you know, you would say that a good pharmacist does, it will come over time. And um, you don't, you know, don't always expect that the very first conversation you have with someone that you're going to completely change the way that they practice. Some of those things, um, you know, they might take a little more time. Thank you for that. Sean, were you going to ask a question? Yeah, no, I definitely think he answered that question really well. And I do think it's very important to understand that you don't want to like overstep on someone with one recommendation where you can just be respectful and courteous and like approach the situation better so that way you can develop a long-term like relationship. And then, you know, that will lead to so many other like more future recommendations you can make or they'll be more receptive than maybe they learn from you and they'd follow like, you know, maybe like that less, lesser duration becomes a standard of their practice because you respected them and had good rapport with them. So I definitely think that was a good way to approach the situation. Um, I do have a question for you. Um, do you have any pet peeves when it comes to antimicrobial use usage at all? So, yeah, so now we'll kind of flip the script a little bit and go from, you know, talking about patients and empathy to where there really are things that are done now that don't need to be done anymore. And uh, some of it has gotten to the point where, you know, the ID community has just, you know, tried to, to preach these messages over and over and over again, but uh, things are still done, you know, not in the best way possible. So I think one that, you know, it's, it's sad that in 2021, we're still talking about it is asymptomatic bacteria. So, you know, we know now that there's, for most people, as long as we're not, you know, in the setting of pregnancy or upcoming urologic procedure, just because you have a bacteria in the urine does not mean it needs to be treated, but it's still something that across the country and the world probably that uh, is still treated in a big big uh, driver of uh, antibiotic misuse in the outpatient setting and in the ED um, and in the inpatient setting. So, I mean, you know, there's, you know, if you look on PubMed, there's plenty of interventions that have been been put forth um, specifically to address this, but really it's just disappointing that these specific interventions are really needed still um, in 2021, because that's one thing where I feel like it's been talked about so much that, um, you would hope that it starts to catch on a little bit more. So that would probably be my biggest pet peeve if I had to pick one. Sean, do you have a do you have a pet peeve? Do I have a pet peeve? And, uh, I have one for ID. Um, yeah, for me, it's always just um, like long courses of vancomycin, just because like it has like a lot of nephrotoxicity. I mean, if you if someone has like um variable renal function like it can be a really hard drug to dose and things like that and for me it's more like if i see like if they're like respiratory for using it or they don't have an indication and those those mercenaries are negative for me it's just like it has to go or i definitely want (laughs) to de-escalate as soon as possible because i feel like that's can be a potentially harmful drug so i think that's my biggest bet usage. i'll piggyback off of you uh the doing like trough trough dosing instead of AUC over MIC. It's like if the evidence is favoring this, why, why are some places still doing trough? 
you know, if that's what we're saying we should be doing, shouldn't we be going off the AUC? But that's my personal pet peeve. We don't have to get into that, but I'm, I'm with you there, Sean. I'm with you on the same drug. All right. So for our last question, Dr. Pardo, uh, do you have any tips or recommendations? You kind of mentioned some resources earlier with the social media, the email alerts from top, top journals, financial news, journal clubs, um, teaching, publishing articles and whatnot to help with uh, remembering and staying involved in the ID field, but do you have any other tips or recommendations for students, residents, and pharmacists that are struggling with infectious diseases, remembering the drugs, remembering which bugs are covered by which drugs um, to better understand that? So I think, um, you know, as a student, whatever material your professor has given you that is going to be on the exam, focus on that. So that's, I think, something easy to say as a student. Um, and I say that because I feel like the approach to the actual lifelong learning component and getting it to actually, actually stick and be able to use it is probably going to be different than what you need to do any given semester in an ID class to make sure you get a good grade on the test. So yeah, for an ID test, you probably need to memorize a bunch of bug and drug stuff. But honestly, you know, in the daily life of an ID pharmacist, and drugs is really the easy part. The things that are more difficult are going to be not, you know, coming up with a recommendation per se about a specific, specific um, case or, you know, some kind of initiative. Really, it's the social aspect and, um, you know, facilitating other people to change and um, do the right thing with antibiotics. So just to preface, like, yes, we can talk about some ways to, like, get better up to speed with your bugs and drug stuff. But really, in the end, you know, if you go down the ID route, you'll find that that's going to be the least of your worries. And there's other things that are going to be um, more challenging pieces of the job. But uh, I guess my advice to students, residents, pharmacists, and trying to, uh, you know, memorize this stuff or get better with it is really I, I would focus on the common stuff first. So, for example, like, you need to know the main gram-positive cocci. So your staphylococci, your strep, and your enterococcus, those are going to be popping up on all kinds of cultures. So, you know, focus on the common stuff like that and get familiar with those organisms and um, what the drugs of choice are. And don't worry as much about the less common stuff at first. So you don't need to devote a lot of brain space to you know, TB or rare non, you know, NTMs and nocardia and actinomyces and all this stuff that you'll see eventually. Um, and eventually you'll see it, you know, a good handful of times, but not really worth all the, you know, the, the focus up front initially. So just focus on the common stuff. You'll see it enough that it'll just start to uh, be ingrained and then save resources. So if you, encounter some kind of weird bacteria that some patient has grown from some, you know, culture, and you have to spend some time, you know, seeing what case reports are out there. Maybe your lab doesn't test sensitivities against it. So you have to see um, what's published out there about what is this bacteria sensitive to or not. Save those resources. So create a folder, create it, you know, somewhere in your drive, you know, a folder for all these different random bugs that you come across that you don't come across all the time so that 
when you do see it again, um, you don't got to repeat all that same search work again. You can go back to some of the references you saved. And then, I don't know, just it'll come over time. So I don't know if that's like a cop-out answer, but the stuff that's important and common, it's like anything else you do, if you do it over and over again, you know, you'll, you'll become more comfortable with it. And I guess the last thing I would say is, you know, there is always going to be some component of understanding the spectrum of activity for different antibiotics and different antibiotic classes. But you can't just think about it like that. Remember to also think about it more from like a disease state based uh, viewpoint, because if you encounter one bacteria in the blood versus skin versus urine or a CSF culture, you might want to pick a different drug depending on what the clinical scenario is. So don't just think of it in, you know, the, the bug drug chart. Also put it in the context of the um, disease state. And when doing that, you know, there's usually some kind of IDSA guideline that can at least be a good starting point when, you know, looking at what kind of antibiotics would be good for the bugs that you're likely to encounter in different disease states. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a cop-out answer. I think when it comes to ID, it's so broad that a lot of us feel it's too much to cover. So I think in that area, it's smart to just focus on the basics, take it slow. Like you said, start with the, the caucus organisms and then maybe build from there. Okay, start with the gram positives and maybe go to the gram negatives. Or if you want to start with beta lactams with penicillins first and build upon that and you can go to cephalosporins and then carbapenems, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think sometimes it's, it's like a cliche answer, but people need to hear it to help them get back to the basics. Like start with a, having a solid foundation and build from there. And as you practice and as you get better, you'll get more familiar with everything that's coming along. And like you said, keep a, um, a whether it's a Google Drive or a document on, on, your, on your computer, on your specific laptop of the maybe different disease states or different things that different bugs, antimicrobials that you come across and what was the recommended drug of choice. So that way you can kind of have that quick reference near you whenever you come across that again, or there's just something you can always look at and refer to just in your spare time if you want something to read. So I think that's a great recommendation and something I haven't been doing, but that's something I'll, I'll probably start doing when it comes to infectious, infectious disease. Because yeah. yeah, the other thing, um, that I'll highlight to kind of support my cop-out answer is that like if I go back to the bug drug chart that I made in my second year of pharmacy school, you know, 10 plus years ago, over time stuff with ID changes. So there's bugs that, you know, 10 years ago, we might've treated with one drug, but now we don't anymore because the resistance rate is too high. So, you know, looking out over time, these things are going to change. So trying to, just like memorize a whole mass of, um, you know, massive chart that you think is going to last forever. doesn't really work. It doesn't really work out like that. Yeah. I, I definitely think that like the good, like gradual approach and then constantly refreshing things like you're talking about is really important. Uh, I kind of wanted to ask you a question because you're talking, I, I know you brought up if you're dealing with a organism that maybe you haven't treated before, or you're not too familiar with it. And you're saying you like to look at like, uh, like case reports and stuff like that. Do you use like, like, um, like other resources, like the, like, I think it's like the Stanford guide or anything else to help you with anything like that? Or do you like to like more look at like primary, like case reports or primary literature? 
So I think um, I've never been a huge fan of the Sanford guide. Um, again, like, uh, you know, a lot of the charts, you know, looking at a bug drug mm -hmm. combination, it either has like a one plus or a two plus or a plus minus, like, what does that mean clinically? I, I've, it's never been really my favorite resource. So like, I don't, you know, people like it, that's fine. But, you know, to answer the question about like a less common organism, yeah, I mean, it really depends. So I think looking at the primary literature is never wrong and hopefully you find something there. So, you know, doing a search on PubMed for, you know, the specific organism, hopefully you can find something there. And then sometimes, honestly, just, uh, you know, Google is so good at what they do, just a straight up Google search um, will sometimes bring um, more clear results than typing the same terms into PubMed, unfortunately. And then another resource that I can put out there is there's a journal called uh, CMR or Clinical Microbiology Reviews. And this is like one of the best resources for clinical microbiology. So if you want to know about the Bearden's group streptococci, or you want to know about some particular group of bacteria, there's probably um, a CMR article about it, and it will have everything you ever wanted to know about the you know history, how we discovered it, how we got its name, how many times its name has changed, and then you know clinically what kind of disease states does it cause, and then um, typically we'll include a part summarizing whatever we know about their general sensitivity patterns. Um, so that's that's a good journal to uh, have in mind when you're looking at this kind of stuff too. Thank you for sharing, because I've honestly never heard of that journal before, and I probably would have never came across it if you didn't mention it. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to look into that, especially before your rotation, so <laughs> I'm going to have to look into that one. I mean, it might be a little heavy-handed for, like, your day-to-day -day stuff, what you actually need to know and apply clinically, but if you, like, really want to learn about clinical micro, you can definitely find some gems in there. Since, Sean, since you mentioned the... Stanford um, guidelines. You made me think of the John Hopkins one. Do you ever use that, Dr. Pardo? I think that I have, I think I probably have like an old John Hopkins guide saved somewhere on my computer that I might look at every once in a while. You know, a lot of, a lot of hospitals and stewardship programs are, they have a very strong online presence and, you know, they post up, um, you know, all kinds of protocols and uh, their stewardship policies and ID policies, which is also, um, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a good place to look at, you know, for stuff sometimes too, um, because a lot of times there might not be, you know, any great primary literature or a trial on something. And um, maybe you're in a spot where you're, you know, working on limited evidence and um, then you want to see, well, what are other people doing can I come up with something reasonable, um, you know, in the setting of, you know, not a lot of evidence and uh, that, that kind of stuff can help, help too sometimes. Perfect. Thank you for that. Um, so that was it for the questions that I have for you, Sean, did you have any extra questions? No, I think that um, was all the ones that I think I had written down. I think everything was covered. I think Joe, you did an excellent job answering all our questions. So I guess, did you have any questions for us? Well, thank you. Yeah. No, I won't put you on the spot like that. No, no, uh, <laughs> no questions for you guys. I would say, you know, I hope, I hope that uh, you're able to keep this thing going. And even when you two step out, have, you know, get someone to grab the torch. Uh, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool thing.
Thank you. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's been tough to keep it going uh, during residency. We haven't been able to do as much as we would oh, like. <laughs> yeah, just because of time. But we're we're fortunate to be able to keep it going and to keep trying to create great content for everybody. So thank you all for listening to another episode. Thank you again, Dr. Joe Pardo, for being a part um, of this episode and definitely sharing your expertise when it comes to the field of infectious disease and the day in the life of being you, <laughs> which I know a lot of people have been interested in what it means to be an ID pharmacist. So thanks again for, thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks again for coming on. As always, please tune in. You can find us on any major streaming network. We're on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. And as always, you can always follow us on Instagram at Capsule Production Podcast. We're on there. We're still doing the weekly quizzes where you can go on there and get some content to help prepare you for the NAPLEX. And definitely stay tuned because we have a lot more exciting stuff coming for you this year. So please, please, please stay tuned. A lot of big changes are coming. Sean doesn't even know about it yet. <laughs> a lot of big changes are coming. John's going to be excited when I tell him he's been working very, very hard. So I'm sure he's a great resident. So that's, that's something that I can't wait to reveal to y'all later on in the year. But thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you.